0: are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavanna.com. Good morning, CBC. My name is Natalie Britt and I'm going to be sharing with us our sermon text for this morning from Hebrews 10. I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers,
1: Thanks, Natalie. Try something here. This is the word of the Lord. A couple of you, all right. We're not starting that every time. We're just going to try it every once in a while, all right? Let me pray for us. We've got a lot to do this morning, and we'll ask God's help before we get started. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you that when we gather, you speak to us in and through the pages of Scripture. That's my prayer, my hope this morning, God, that you would use me to speak to your people. Where we need to be encouraged, God, would you encourage us? Where we need to be challenged in our uh, straying from you. God, would you do that through your word? We need your help. Speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn there to Hebrews 10. If you haven't already, that is the passage that we are going to be in this morning. Um, we're going to spend most of our time in those seven verses that Natalie read for us. We also are going to actually finish the rest of chapter 10. We'll cover, cover all of that. But If you've been here with us, you know that we've been in this series for quite a while now. This letter to Hebrews is written to a group of people who, the vast majority of them grew up Jewish, and then at some point in their life, they believed that Jesus is the Messiah. They come to hear the gospel, the good news, they came to believe that Jesus ultimately is the one who was promised who would come to redeem and restore what sin had broken in the world. These men believed that, right, and women, they believed that, they gave their life to follow after Jesus, and then um, something happened. Um, they, life wasn't exactly what they expected, right? They began to kind of question themselves and wonder, well, maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah after all. Maybe we should go back to the old covenant. Maybe we should go back to the old Testament, the old tabernacle and sacrificial system. And and the author of Hebrews, this is the whole point of this letter. He writes this letter to compel them not to do that. It's a letter compelling them not to go back to the old way, but rather to hold fast to Jesus. He says, because Jesus is better. That is, if you want to know what the book of Hebrews is about, three-word summary, Jesus is better. This word better, it shows up uh, over a dozen times in the book of Hebrews, and once in our passage today, which we'll see later. Um, It does not mean what we typically mean when we use the word better. So if we say something's better, we mean it is the best of several pretty good options, right? Like last night, Georgia was better than Kentucky, okay? (laughs) Got to do that when Bill's not around. Um, but like, if you were having a conversation with someone uh, about where can you get the, the best taco in Savannah, like which restaurant is, is the best, the better one? Um, some people would say what? Throw one out. Bull Bull. Tequila Town. Bull Street. Typically, you know, Bull Street and Tequila Town are kind of the top two. Then there, there are people who are like my people, normal people who go to Jalapenos, you know, which is good tacos too. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. You can argue all you want. And at the end of the day, Bull Street probably is better. But it doesn't matter because tacos are good, okay? No matter where you get them. They're good, even from Taco Bell. And and earlier I said that and somebody goes, oh, they're disgusting. I go, you're a liar, they're delicious. (laughs) They're not good for you, right? But they are delicious. Um, Jesus being better than the old covenant isn't like that. This word better, it means superior. It means that all other options are inferior. It's like the difference if you have to go to Europe It's the difference between um, taking a plane is better than trying to swim. That's the difference. Because with one option you just get on and you eat a couple snacks, you watch a movie or two, take a nap, someone else does all the work and you end up in Europe, okay? And then with the other option, no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you are at swimming, no matter how much you train, you will drown. Taking a plane is better than trying to swim if you're going to Europe, right? That's the difference. Jesus is better. This is the, the point of the book of Hebrews and there's two primary threads that run through this book. And I hope you've picked up on these as we've been studying this. There's two threads. There's the thread of encouragement and the thread of warning. So he writes to encourage them that no matter how difficult the circumstances of your life might be, do not abandon your faith in Jesus, to encourage them to do that. But he also is going to warn them lovingly about what will happen if they do. And we're going to see both of those in our text this morning, both encouragement and warning. If you are a note-taking type of person, if you like an outline, our outline is this, the first seven verses. There are two senses, S-I-N-C-E, two senses and then three let us's. Basically two things where the author says, since this is true, then exhortation, three things, let us do these three things. And that's our outline for this morning. Let's start with the senses in verse 19. He says this, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Those are our two sense statements. And in, in very real ways, those three verses are a summary of the entire book of Hebrews up to this point. So he's taken nine and a half chapters to make this argument and, and they can be summarized in, in those three verses. And, and what does he say? Therefore, brothers... And if you have an ESV open in your lap, there's, there should be a footnote, a number one, next to the word brothers, that indicates a footnote. And if you look down at the bottom of the page, it says, or brothers and sisters. And I'll, I'll point that out because I need to tell you, that is not the Bible trying to like cave to our culture and be politically correct. It's Bible translators acknowledging that the word used that is translated brothers does not specifically or have to refer to just men. So a better translation here of what he's saying is, therefore, siblings. The idea is coming from the same family, the same parents, and I, I want to point that out because it's significant. It's incredibly significant that as he thinks about what it means to be a Christian and what it should look like in our life, he approaches a family, or he, he addresses, rather, a family. He uses family language. It's the idea of the, the family that's formed in Christ as we put our faith in him and begin to follow after him. Incredibly significant. We're going to come back to it at the end. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have, what, confidence to enter the holy places, now, that phrase to the original audience would have been staggering. Um, and we talked about this a ton over the past several weeks, but just so we're on the same page, this, this word, here's why. This word, holy places, it's a reference back to the temple uh, in the Old Covenant, or, or under the Old Covenant. And the holy place, it was the place behind the veil in the temple where God's presence was. And it was a place that essentially no one had access to. So to the holy places, somebody did have access, but essentially no one did because the one who did have access was the high priest of Israel who once a year could go into the Holy of Holies behind the veil on the Day of Atonement and they would bring with them this, the, the sacrifice, the blood of an animal to make an offering for the sins of the people. And as he went in there, the reason why I say he essentially had no access is because as he went in, as he peeked behind the veil and began to step in to make this offering, he would go in knowing that if he messed up even the smallest thing that was prescribed by Old Testament law, he would expect nothing less than death. So essentially, no one had access. And the author of Hebrews, here in chapter 10, just said, brothers and sisters, you and me, we have access we have access to the holy places not only that he says we have been given access we have confidence to go in confidence now this word confidence other places in the bible it's translated boldness or openness it means to go without secrets it means that you have access to god you don't have to posture or pretend you're someone you're not you don't have to go on your best behavior or dress up in your favorite clothes you have access to god which shows us The access of the new covenant, what you and I have, what we enjoy under the new covenant is altogether different than what the high priest of Israel had, right? He would go in once a year, again, pull back the veil, go with fear and trembling, hoping that he would do everything just right, that he wouldn't forget a step. The author of Hebrews says, we have confident access to the presence of God in a way that that the high priest of Israel couldn't even fathom about. And the question we should ask then is, where does this access come from? Where does this confident access come from? Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? He says, by the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus. The new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Notice what the Bible didn't just say. Right, the Bible did not just say, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the holy places because we read our Bibles every day this week it doesn't say we have confidence to enter the holy places because we have been doing really good at keeping our quiet times or because we grew up in church or because in the last 6 months we've gotten a lot better at managing that sin that's really been we've been struggling with for our whole christian lives it doesn't say that the bible says we have access to the presence of god why because of the blood of jesus because on the cross jesus died in our place paying the penalty for our sin on the third day he rose again overcoming sin and death and forever securing for us the righteousness that we all need if we want to approach the God of the universe. This is the good news of the gospel. This is what makes Christianity Christianity. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says this, it was for our sake that he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, you and I might become the righteousness of God. If you don't have that verse memorized, you should, right? It was for us. For you, for me, that God the Father sent the Son to live the perfect life that we could never live, to die the death that we deserve to die, and to make us into what we had no shot of becoming on our own, which is righteous. Jesus takes our sin, we get his righteousness, and now and forevermore, the banner over your life, the banner over my life, if we put our faith in Jesus and are in Christ is this, Christ in my place and me in his. That is the banner over every one of our lives from this moment forward, regardless of how good we do or how much better we measure up or any other thing, because he says the blood of Jesus. This is what he calls in verse 20, the new and living way. It's new, it's living, because the old way, under the old covenant, gave access to the, through the blood of a sacrifice that was from an animal that was dead. Access under the old covenant came from the blood of a sacrifice through an animal that was dead. But now, church, under the new covenant, our access is because of the perfect sacrifice of the sinless son of God. And Jesus is alive. I don't have time for this. I want you to see this. He says, there's a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Through the curtain. You know what that's talking about? That curtain? The curtain in the temple? Let me read you this in Matthew 27. Matthew 27. This is... Uh, an explanation of the final moments of Jesus' earthly life. He says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said this, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine. They put it on a reed and they gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit and look at this, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The curtain of the temple is what separated a sinful people from the presence of a holy God. This curtain, God's presence is in the holy of holies and there's this four to six inch thick curtain that separates the presence of God from from sinful people and it wasn't because God was being stingy with his presence or trying to hide from his people it was because and the reason why the the high priest went in with fear and trembling because sinful people can't stand before a holy God so the veil the curtain of the temple is God protecting his people from him right and yet, when Jesus breathes his last and yields up his spirit as a perfect offering for sin what happens to the curtain it's torn in two From top to bottom, which means God is the one who did it. God himself is the source of our access to him. It isn't you and what you've done. It's Jesus and what he has done for you. Listen to this from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, for believers, the veil is not rolled up, meaning access for a short time. It's gone. It's torn. The veil was not unhooked and carefully folded up and put away so that it might be put in its place at some future time. Oh, no. The divine hand took it and tore it from top to bottom. It can never be hung up again. That is impossible. Between those who are in Christ Jesus and the great God, there will never be another separation. This is what leads the apostle Paul to say in Romans 8 verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what no condemnation means? No condemnation. None. It's what leads the author of Hebrews says to say, we have confidence. You have confidence, and I'm gonna nerd out a little bit in the original language because this is important. We wouldn't know this if you just read the English. This word, we have, it's written in the original language in the present active tense, all right? You're like, what does that mean? It means it's present and active. It means it's not a future promise that God is gonna give you access to God. He's already given it to you right now, and it's active. It's not conditional upon you upholding your end of the bargain, and then God will give you access to him. No, it's present and it's active. You and I right now, because of Jesus, have confidence, Openly, uh, without secrets, plainly we get to come before, not casually, but with confidence, come before the God of the universe because of the living, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, because of His blood and not ours. This means the foundation of our access to God is not what we do, but rather it's what Christ has done. That's our first sense, since we have access. all right here's the second one, verse 21. and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Here's the second sense. I think the point here is, not only is Jesus the perfect sacrifice for sinners like you and me, he's also the one, the great high priest, not just the sacrifice, he's the one who offers that sacrifice to God the Father on our behalf. Think about that with me. He's not just the sacrifice, He's the high priest, the great priest over the house of God who offers that sacrifice on our behalf to God, which means this, and you're confused, I get it. It means that Jesus hasn't just done something for you. He is presently and actively doing something for you. He didn't just die on the cross for your sins, for forgiveness, and says, hey man, you're on your own now. He hasn't just done something for you, he is present and actively doing something for you. All right, Romans 8 verse 34 says this. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, he is where? At the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is what Jesus is doing for you and me right now. The Bible says the resurrected Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he has finished the work of providing a perfect sacrifice for sins once and for all. He's finished that work, but he's not off the clock. Because what's it say? He's interceding for us. 1 John 2 says it this way. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's our second sense, since he is our advocate, since we have an advocate. That word advocate, it means that someone who pleads another's case before a judge, and that's Jesus' high priestly ministry on your behalf. He pleads your case before the judge. We have an advocate. So, the author of Hebrews says, since we have been given access to the Father through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, and since He is presently and actively ministering to us as an advocate, then let us three exhortations. Since those two things are true, let us do these three things. Here's the first one, verse 22. He says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. Is our first exhortation. A couple of weeks ago, um, my wife and I, Mary Elizabeth and I, took our boys, we have four kids, seven, five, three, and one, and we took just the oldest two, our boys, up to Athens uh, to watch a football game. Go dogs, right? There are times in, in sermons where it's appropriate to say praise God, amen, and then very few times, that was one of them, it was appropriate to say go dogs, okay? Um, so, we took them to the game, and it was one of those few times in our life where, or maybe the first time, where we took our children with us out of town, and it wasn't a trip, it was a vacation, right? Because they're seven and five. Akeisha like, knows what I'm talking about. Like, when your kids are little, I love my girls, they're three and one, but when they come with us, it's a trip, okay? But with the boys, we went on vacation, we went up to Athens, and we're spoiled because my father in law has season tickets, and he gave them to us. Not only that, he has a room at the Georgia Center, if you know where that is, it's on campus. So I don't have to fight traffic, which is the worst part about going to college football games. Uh, and it's close, and he has a parking pass. So it just removes all the, the hurdles of going to watch one of these games. And so we got in late Friday night. It was a great trip. Um, we woke up early, me and Zeke, and we're walking around campus, and I'm showing him things about you know when I was there or whatever and seeing all the things that changed. And then uh, the game was late. It was a 7 o'clock game. So we hung out all day on campus and you know, tailgated and then we came back and rested up and had dinner before we went down there. And then you know what we did, like the game was at seven. So about 6.30, we left our hotel room. And if you've been there before, you have to go down a hill into Sanford Stadium. So we're walking down this hill and you know, we're having a good time. There's excitement, all these people. And then we got to the stadium. And you know what we did when we got to the stadium? We didn't stand outside, we went in. Why? Because we have been given access. And, I, and I, go, I know that's simple, it's a simple illustration, but that's simply what the Bible's saying to you. You have been given access, so don't stay outside, go in. You, right now, have been given access to the God of the universe to confidently draw near to him, to get close to him, that's what that word means. Most of the time in the Bible that word draw near, it means come, he's just saying get close. Draw near to God, get close to him. And he says this, draw near with a sincere heart, which other translations is true heart, which means that you don't have to pretend you're someone else to draw near to God. You have been given access. Again, not a future version of you when you figured out that thing that, that really, that you keep giving into temptation. You right now draw near with a sincere heart. It means you don't have to posture or pretend you can draw near. Tell me, let me, let me tell you this. We, church, can enter God's presence at any time in any place, in any situation, no matter our circumstances. You need to believe that. Here, here's, let me go further. You don't have to be in church to draw near to God. You don't have to be good enough to draw near to God. Your faith doesn't have to be strong enough if you wanna draw near to God. You don't have to do anything to get God's attention. You don't have to feel a certain way about God or about yourself or about your circumstances in order to draw near to him. You can be, Your world could be falling apart around you. You don't have to know enough about Christianity to draw near to God. You can be deeply ashamed about your past life or even your present sin and still you can draw near to God. You can suffer from deep depression and anxiety. You could have ignored God your entire life and still you can draw near to God because Hebrews 10 says your access to God isn't based on what you do. It's based on what Christ has done. So we have been invited. And what's the, what's the natural response to all that spiel I just gave? You go, Yeah, but we think there's no way. There's no way God has actually invited us to come to him. And the Bible just said there is only one way. It is by the blood of Jesus. He says, draw near in full assurance of faith. I think this is the author acknowledging how difficult it is to actually believe that God has actually given us access to come to him. He says, draw near in faith, just full assurance of faith, just It's not going to feel like you can come, but I'm telling you, he's invited you in. And so draw near, get close. Come in faith. It's not a call to prepare yourself or get ready or a call for you to try to find your way to God. That's not what he's saying. He says, draw near in full assurance and faith. Verse 22, with your heart sprinkled clean and your body washed with pure water. He's talking about a heart and our bodies, internal and external, which is what makes Jesus and the new covenant better than the old covenant. Because the Old Old Testament sacrifice would cleanse us on the outside. But here, Hebrews says, we even get a new heart. That what the work that Christ does on our behalf cleans us internally and externally, which means that Jesus has forgiven you, not just your past sin, but present sin and future sin, of everything that you will do that is sin, everything that you will say that is sin, Christ's sacrifice is enough to even cleanse us of the things that we feel that is sin and the things that we think that is sin. He washes us inside and out, gives us a new heart. He says, since you have access, and since you have an advocate, he says, let us draw near, let us draw near. So the question is how? How do we draw near? Through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus you get close, you draw near to God, you get close. Let me just ask you this. How often do you get close to God? If you would consider yourself a Christian, what the author of Hebrews just said is since Jesus is our access and he is our advocate, the first thing that comes to his mind that should be true about us is that we should be close to God, we get close to him. So if you would consider yourself a Christian, then how often do you get close to him? What is it that keeps you on the outside? I'm not saying how often do you do things that we could categorize, well, categorically consider Christian. I'm saying how often do you just get close to him? Either through Bible reading or prayer or just listening to God and and remembering who he is and what he's done. And I don't have time for this, but there's a parable Jesus tells the prodigal son. He talks about the younger brother and the older brother. And the younger brother severs the relationship with the father and he goes off and he comes back and he limps in, basically has nothing left and the father not just allows him to come back back in but he kills the fattened calf and he throws a party and he he rejoices. My son who was dead is now alive. He was lost but now he's found. And then what happens to the older brother? He goes out on the front porch and he sits and he pouts because he doesn't think that the, the father should throw a party for his younger son. He says, dad you never threw a party for me And the whole point of the parable is not about the younger or the older brother. It's about being near to the father. Come in. So church, whether you identify with the younger brother and you've squandered your way along with sinning or you're the older brother, you've been religious your whole life but you feel like other people don't deserve it or anywhere in between, the invitation for us this morning is get close to God. Draw near to him through the uh, person and work of Jesus. Remember I said there, there are two encouragements or two threads in this book, one of encouragement, one of warning. Well, that's the encouragement. The real you has really been given access to God, and then there's a thread of warning. I want you to see that here in verse 26. Here's what he's gonna say if we don't draw near to God. If we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but, he says, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So before I say anything about that, let me just acknowledge that this passage is heavy, and it is sobering, and it's one of the more difficult to understand in the book, but the reason why is because when you read it, it sounds like the Bible just said that if after you come to knowledge of the gospel and you understand who Jesus is and what he's done, if at all you sin after that, then Christ's sacrifice won't count for you, right? Isn't that what it sounds like? That's what it sounds like he's saying. But let me just tell you this. That can't be what this means. It can't be. And we know that from this passage, which is the whole point of Him adding verse 21 when he says, not only do we have access and we have an advocate. Remember 1 John 2, if we go on sinning, like I write this to you so that no one will sin, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, right? So this can't be what that means. Um, So, But the question then is, how do we reconcile what verse 26 says? There's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. I think the key here to understand this is one word in verse 26, and it's the word deliberately. For if we go on sinning deliberately, The Bible didn't just say, if we go on sinning, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This word deliberately is translated willfully or voluntarily, and in some sense, all of our sin is willful and voluntary, right? In some sense, every time we make a decision where we know God says go this way, but we go, no, 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 I wanna do this, that's willful. It's voluntary, but that's not the sin that he has in view here, right? That's not what he's talking about. This isn't talking about you, or me struggling with sin or struggling with temptation in our Christian lives, the deliberate and willful sinning that this is referring to is an outright rejection of Jesus altogether. And how we know that is what he says in the second half of verse 26, he says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He just spent almost 10 chapters making the argument that Jesus is better He's superior, his sacrifice counts for you even though you've done nothing to earn it. And then here he says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The only thing he could be talking about is if we reject the one sacrifice that Jesus has provided for us. Hopefully that was clear. This is written as a warning. It's not written to create doubt and fear in your heart or my heart if we're Christians because we struggle with sin or temptation or even doubt. It's not written to create that in us. It's written as a warning that we talked about last week because sin is serious and God is holy and, and God is a God of love and wrath. He's a God of John 3.16 and Hebrews 10.26 and these two truths are not at odds with one another. In fact, if you read John 3.16, he makes the same argument right after that. Listen to this, John 3.16 For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, amen, right? We know that. Look what else he says. Verse 17, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, through his son, praise God. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the son of God. The point is the same in John three that it is in Hebrews 10, that if you reject Jesus, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's the only way, it's like a couple weeks ago as well, I was up in Atlanta, I don't like going there because I don't like traffic, and that's all there is there, okay? We're, we're on, 80, imagine I-85, it's like a million lanes of, of just traffic. And if your goal, your, your uh, thing that you're trying to achieve was I need you to cross I-85 from one side to the other on foot, that's your goal. What is the, what is the expectation? It's a, a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, right? You're gonna die if you try to do that. But what if I said, hey, tell you what, there's one way, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus has created a bridge over that fearful expectation of judgment. Do you wanna take it? You say, yeah, but what if, if you reject it, then you're stepping into the traffic. That's essentially the point he's making. There's one way, and if you reject it, then all you can expect is judgment and a fury of fire, right? Um, that's what he's saying, and then just for the sake of time, in verse 28 down to 20, uh, in 28 and 29, he, he points back to the argument he's been building. He makes this argument all through Hebrews of lesser to greater. He says, Jesus is better. He's greater than the angels, better than the prophets, better than Moses. And if the prophets or the angels were able to give this to us, then how much more, right? It's a lesser to greater argument. We said that a bunch this series. And here he basically says, if under the old covenant, if you rejected the law of Moses, you died, how much more would you expect death and punishment by rejecting God's son. That's what he says in those two verses. Verse 30, he quotes some Old Testament, for we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. And then here's his kind of crescendo of this argument, the warning. Verse 31, he says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Um, that's the warning. And that's supposed to be heavy and supposed to be sobering because it will be heavy if you reject Jesus in the end. That's what he's talking about. What a fearful thing it will be to reject Christ's offer of forgiveness and fall into the hands of the living God. What that means is to stand before God on the day of judgment and have nothing to cover yourself but your own merit. That word fall, Jesus uses it a couple of times in the Gospels. One of the times is in Matthew 12, I believe, when he says, How, which one of you, if you had a sheep who fell into a pit, on the Sabbath, wouldn't pull him out. And that shows us something about what this means, this word fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing because he's basically saying, the sheep doesn't go up there and go, hey, cool looking hole, let me jump down in there. He's talking about he just fell in. And the warning from the author of Hebrews is what a fearful thing it will be to have no idea that one day we will stand before the living God, to fall into that space and have nothing to cover ourselves except for our own merit. And that's heavy and that's sobering and it should be, but the opposite is true as well. Let me encourage you this way what a joy it is, rather than falling into the hands of the living God, to will, willingly submit our lives to his loving care. And to stand on that same day, the day of judgment, before the living God, and not have nothing to cover ourselves but our own merit, but to, to hold up that banner Christ in my place and me in his. Since this is who Jesus is, he says, let us draw near. We have an access, we have been given advocate, an advocate let us draw near. Here's the second exhortation. We're going to go back up to verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. second exhortation is let us hold fast. This word hold fast, it means exactly what it sounds like. It means to keep something, to not let it go like lately, my daughter, for whatever reason, uh, sees all the leaves falling. I and mean, we have a crepe myrtle tree in our front yard and there's thousands of leaves. They all look exactly the same, but these three are beautiful. And I'm gonna keep these forever. And so she like, in her pocket, everywhere she goes, she has like three crepe myrtle leaves and she's gonna keep them until they disintegrate and she grabs it. And that's what that I means, hold fast, okay? Keep it, cling to it. Um, verse 23 says, do this without wavering. Hold fast the confession of hope without wavering. And I mentioned that because I, I think... Essentially what this means is hold on and don't let go without wavering. And I think it's easy to understand what this is saying and I think a lot of us do understand what this is saying and then we take that and apply that and that's what it means to be a Christian. Let me explain. We think I just gotta keep hanging on Life is hard. It's difficult. I'm struggling with temptation. I'm struggling with work. I'm struggling with home. I'm I'm, I'm bad at a parent. Life is difficult. I can just hang on. i just got to do enough to be enough to earn God's love and approval. I'm struggling in this way, but I can do it. I can white knuckle my way through life. It's like trying to dead hang from a monkey bar for the rest of your life. You're just hanging on as long as you can. Just hanging there as long as you can. You're forever on this cycle of just squeezing it until your, your hands give out, you fall down, and then you run away from God because you're embarrassed and you're in shame, and you live your life, you clean yourself up enough where you can cover your bad things until you feel good enough about coming back to God and you go, look, God, I, I, I fixed it. And then what do we do? You jump back on the bar. And then we call that Christianity. That's what we think verse 23 is talking about, but that's not Christianity. That is not the hold fast the Bible is talking about here. That doesn't even make sense with what he's said already. Since we have been given access by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, not how strong our grip is. and since we have an advocate for us, when we can't hang on before the Father Jesus Christ, since that's who He is, let us hold fast, he says to what? The confession of our hope. Not hold fast to like goodness or morality. hold fast to your confession. What is our confession? In Christ alone, my hope is found. That's our confession. Christ in my place and me in his. And and this is what he says we should hold fast to. Hold fast to the reality that you didn't earn your way into God's love and approval, and so it's not your responsibility to keep it. Draw near to God, hold fast to this truth, let's cling to that, which means this. It means that the author of Hebrews understands that when we're trying to live a Christian life, there will be days and seasons where it is easy for whatever reason, by God's grace, to believe that the gospel's true, and that God actually loves us despite the fact that we don't deserve it. That will happen, praise God. But the fact that he says let us hold fast to this is him acknowledging that there will be days and seasons as we're trying to live the Christian life where it will be incredibly difficult to believe that God loves us despite the fact that we don't deserve it. Why? Because we know we don't deserve it. We know we don't deserve it. I think what was happening with this original audience and why he writes this is because is what happens in our lives today. We develop these false expectations about what it means to be a Christian. And we think the Christian life is supposed to be up and to the right, always improving in two primary ways. One, we feel like we should always be getting better when it comes to sin and we should never struggle. It should just always get better. And the other component of that, we think that God, we're gonna uphold our end of the bargain And so God's gonna bless us. He's gonna uphold his side of the bargain. So he's gonna keep us from ever getting sick or any of our family members from ever getting sick and he's gonna keep us safe, right? And he's gonna give us uh, material prosperity. We think that's what God's supposed to do but what happens when you read the Bible, what becomes clear is that Jesus doesn't offer us an easier or more comfortable life. He doesn't. He offers us the only way to live a meaningful life And and as as difficult as it is to understand, and I'm walking through one of those seasons right now, part of that, part of the only way to live a life that's meaningful includes pain and suffering. Even when it doesn't make sense. What the Bible teaches, Jesus says this in John 15. He says, if you wanna follow me, I need you to remember something. A servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. The point is, God never... Uh, promises to keep us out of the valley. He promises to be with us in the valley. And the author of Hebrews says, let's hold fast to that. Let's cling to the confession of our hope, which means, church, your circumstances, no matter how difficult they may be, are not evidence that God has abandoned you. They're not. Hold fast. Look at verse 32. He says, but recall the former days, So he's pointing them back to a time. So right now they're thinking about abandoning Jesus because life's not going the way they think it should. And he points them back to a time where life was still hard, but they weren't thinking about abandoning Jesus. Recall the former days after you were enlightened, that's come to faith in Jesus. He says, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Not just a struggle with sufferings, a hard struggle with sufferings. And sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes you were partners with those so treated Verse 34, he said, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better and abiding one. A better possession and an abiding one. So he encourages them by pointing them back to how they had endured persecution in the past to the point where he says in verse 34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Think about what that means. That while they're assumingly taking care of someone who's in prison because of their faith in jesus their houses are being looted and perhaps burning a burnt and then he says you joyfully accepted that now here's what this doesn't mean this doesn't mean that we're supposed to leave our doors unlocked invite people put a sign out hey free come take any of my stuff right it's not saying that we should be happy when terrible things happen to us he says you joyfully accepted it Joyfully accepted it. You don't go looking for suffering, but even though it came, you never lost your joy. Why? He tells us because you knew you had a better and abiding possession. This is the word better that I was talking about earlier. It means superior. The point is that uh, it's not that suffering and, and loss in this world isn't going to hurt. It will. It's the point that the superior possession is one that abides. He says that means it lasts. In this context, it means it's one that can't be taken from you. And so let me ask you this. If you were having a conversation with a friend, and you're walking through this, and maybe they're a Christian, maybe they're new, maybe they're not, and you're walking through this chapter, and they asked you, hey, what what is the better and abiding possession that this is talking about? What would you say? I want you just to think about that. If you had a friend who asked you, "What, what is the better and abiding possession that this is talking about that allowed them to somehow be so detached to the things of the world that even though that their houses were looted and burned and perhaps their family members were harmed, even though these difficult, incredibly difficult things were happening in their life, they were able to endure those things with joy, without losing joy and hope. What is the better in abiding possession? It's God himself. It's God himself. It's the good news of the gospel. Jesus is who the Bible says he is. He has saved us from our sins. He has given us access. He is our advocate. And one day he's promised us that he will return and make all things new and we will be with him forever. Ultimately, the better and abiding possession is God himself, which is why we can have joy no matter what's happening around us because the superior possession can never be taken from us. Look what he says in verse 35. That's the encouragement. He encourages them. And then here again, the threat of warning Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Down to verse 39. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He says in verse 35, do not throw away your confidence. We've heard that word confidence before a lot this morning. It's in verse 19. He's talking about our confident access to God, and he says, don't throw that away, there is great reward in it because ultimately what it's talking about is God himself. That's the warning. Don't throw it away. Here's the encouragement again. Back in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. He is faithful. Even the reason why we can hang on is because of his faithfulness and not ours. And so he says, since this is who Jesus is, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and then here's the last one, and I have... Negative one minute and 37 seconds to cover it. All right, we're going to go fast. Here's the last one. Look at verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another and to to love in good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here's the third exhortation. Let us consider one another. Remember earlier in verse 19, before all the senses and let us, he said, therefore, brothers and sisters, and he uses this family language. It's significant because as he's thinking about what it means to be a Christian, what Christ has done for us and how we should live our lives as a result, he thinks about not a person, but a people. He has in mind a family, brothers and sisters, people who aren't just together because they, they all want something from the same source, although that's true, we're also together. We care for one another, and that's his point here, right? That he uses family language because it is impossible to be reconciled to God and belong to him as a child, and not also be reconciled to one another and belong to each other as brothers and sisters in the family of faith. I have a pastor friend, I have a friend who's a pastor in Texas, and the way he says this is, it's not me and Jesus, it's we and Jesus. I think another way to say that would be our hope is in Christ alone, but we are not in Christ alone. We are the family of faith. This is why the author of Hebrews says, since we have access and since we have an advocate, let's draw near, let's hold fast. And he says, let's consider one another. That word consider means to think about it, to perceive it, to look at the people around us and go, how can I stir them up? This word stir one another up, it's funny. It means to irritate. It means to annoy, essentially. Most of the time in the Bible, it's used negatively like that. I don't need to spend any time on what it means to be irritated, do I? We get that. There was somebody near me the other day smacking their gum, just, and I was like, you've got to be kidding me, you know? I'm a pastor. God has done this work in my heart. I should love people, and I do not love that person right now, right? Like, like we know what it's like to be irritated in our hearts, and, and because that person's presence invoked something in me, and that's what the Bible's saying. Since Jesus is given, has given you access to God the Father through the broken body and shed blood, since he is our advocate, then get close to him, cling to your confession, and then look at the people around you and consider how do you stir them up. Invoke out of them love and good works, which quite simply means this. He says, don't, it gives us two examples. Don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of son, and encouraging one another. Two options, or two examples for how we do this. Keep meeting And encourage, which means this, show up. Which you already did that this morning, good job. Show up in the gathering, it's important. Show up in community groups, show up with Bible studies or whatever meetings, like surround yourself with people. Uh, Show up and show up intentionally. Encourage them, right? If if you see somebody around you who, who has done something that reminds you of Jesus or you see growth in them, don't just go, hmm, praise God, and move on. Tell them. Encourage that in them. Likewise, if you see somebody on the edge of I-85 and they're considering, I see the bridge over there, but maybe I'll try it on my own. You go, no, 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 brother, come this way. Encourage them to the one way, right? That's what this is talking about. Don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. How does a habit form, overnight or over time? Over time, so the question is this. Are you, as a follower of Jesus, are you forming the habit of not neglecting to gather with intentionality and to encourage others? Or are you forming the the habit of neglecting to gather? Make it a priority, show up. When you show up, be intentional. Let me just ask you this and we'll be done. Who are the people in your life that stir you up? Who are the people that because of their presence in your life, they invoke in you toward love and good works? And then the opposite side of that's true as well. Who are the people that you're stirring up? Who are the folks that God has called you to intentionally move toward to encourage them toward love and good works. And he closes by saying this. Verse 25, do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That day, the word D is, or the letter D is capitalized because it's talking about a specific day. What day is it? The day the Lord Jesus returns. He says, you have been given access, you have an advocate, Uh, draw near to God, stay close to him, hold fast, cling to him, consider the people around you, the church, your brothers and sisters, how you can encourage them. And do this all the more and more until you see the day drawing near, the day the the Bible says the sky's gonna crack open, Jesus is going to return. He's gonna leave from the right hand of God the Father where he is our advocate and he is going to come to make all things new. The Bible says on that day death will be no more Everything that is painful in your life will be no more. It says Christ himself will wipe away the tears from your eyes, which means not only will they go away, those painful things, but, but Jesus is somehow going to redeem and restore them. Until then, let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider one another. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in singing. Father, I'm thankful for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you love us, even though we don't deserve it. I pray that you would help us. I pray that, CBC of Savannah would not be a place where we just show up to consume, but a place where we belong together to encourage and to stir one another up toward love and good works. Would you help us by the power of your spirit? We need that. As we sing and respond, God, would you allow us the faith to believe that we have been given access to draw near? Help us, God, we need it. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and respond.